Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast, Discover North Korea. I'm your host, Zoe, from Zoe Discovers. And if you're watching on YouTube, then you will note that we are recording the video today. Um, so it's not just audio, but it also is visual. So if you do fancy watching that, you can hop on over to YouTube. I am not alone on the podcast today, but I'm about to be joined by a very special guest. He's been to North Korea multiple times as a tourist and even more times as a freelance tour guide, going a massive six times in 2019 alone. But there's one place in the DPRK that holds a special place in his heart, and we'll chat a bit about that today and reveal where that might be. Also, if you're watching on YouTube, you will be able to tell that my hair is very wet, um, and this is due to the fact that the aircon is broken where I currently live, and it's currently at like 38 degrees. I have two fans on me, so and I've got like wet hair to try and cool myself down. So if you hear any background noise, that's probably it. I do apologize for that in advance. Before we get stuck in and say hello to our guests, do remember to like or rate or do whatever you can about this podcast. If you haven't already, it does mean a lot to me, honestly. Um, and feel free to follow me on whatever social media channels you use tiktok twitter instagram youtube all the things uh, you can find me on zoe discovers or zoe discovers nk email me your questions guest recommendations comments whatever on zoe discovers at gmail.com and before we go i did promise that i would tell you about a super extra special giveaway that i'm currently doing on youtube and instagram let me tell you about that quickly it's basically um, head over to my YouTube video, my most recent YouTube video. It's actually a pretty cool video, if I do say so myself, just 10 minutes long. Um, and the giveaway details are about like 10 minutes, 55 seconds in. Um, it's super simple. Basically, all you have to do is, um, is like make a couple of comments on like YouTube and Instagram. 
um, to be in the chance to win a North Korea calendar for 2023. I know that it's already July and over half the year is over, but nevertheless, I still think it's a pretty cool gift. Um, and I managed to get hold of a couple recently. One of them is going to my patrons and one of them is going to one of you guys. The competition is going to be on for a whole week now until the 8th. Super simple entry, um, head over to the YouTube video to find out more. The link will be in the show notes. And without further ado, let's welcome Pete to the show. So Pete, welcome to the podcast. So nice to have you on and so nice to be able to actually catch up. Um, it's been a while. Uh, before I get into when we last saw each other and stuff like that, do you want to introduce yourself to our listeners who um, who haven't heard from you before? Great, yeah, sorry, it's really good to see you again and uh, have a catch up. Uh, so we know each other from our time at Corio Tours. I, uh, prior to living in the UK, where I am now, I spent a lot of time in China. I was there from 2010 to 2020. And during that time, I made several visits to the DPRK, um, most of which were as a freelance tour leader for Corio Tours. So I believe we first met each other um, in... 2019 or perhaps it was even 2017 during the Pyongyang Marathon tour um, but uh, nonetheless we've been to North Korea together um, more than a handful of times and yeah. it's really good to be shining today. Definitely um, but I, we might have seen each other in the 2017 Pyongyang Marathon I wasn't working for Korea Tours then, um, I was with right. a different tour company, but um, we might have seen each other in Pyongyang, uh, interestingly enough, but yeah, definitely saw each other um, a lot in 2019, that was really nice, and our last tour together actually was the 2019 to 2020 New Year's Eve tour, which will always stay in my mind, I don't know how much like it stays in your mind, but like it will always stay in my mind as like one of the best tours, um, one of my best times of my life, to be honest, um, one of my definitely one of my best New Year's. I don't know if you've had any great New Year's Eves since, but for me, I don't know, especially during COVID, it's been all a bit rubbish. So um, yeah, uh, it was definitely, definitely a night to remember of some people who've maybe consumed too much alcohol. I don't, don't remember it all too yeah. well, but no. It was a great time. No, it was epic. Yeah. I remember, yeah, seeing you there. I've got a one second a day video diary. So every, I remember you doing every day that. I record a second. Yeah. And your your face and, and a few other people featuring my one, my countdown from like five, four, three, two, one towards New Year. And then we have the nice fireworks over Pyongyang, hey. which is a pretty nice memory. Oh, that's so good. And I remember you telling me about this one second a day thing that you do. And I was like, I'm going to do that. Um, and then I'm pretty sure I started it in 2020. I like I don't downloaded the app. I started it in 2020. Um, but then COVID happened and I was like, I don't want to record any of this. Life is rubbish. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, right. Yeah, never mind. Uh, I was going to say um, on your just because you said you were in China from 2010. Maybe you can just talk a little bit about, before we get into the North Korea stuff, people might be curious what you were doing in China, in, you know, in 2010, because that's already, that's already over, like, I mean, it's over 10 years ago, um, which doesn't sound uh, like a long time, but I think in China terms, a lot has changed in China um, over the 10 years. It changed even when I was living there since like 2016, 2017 time. What were you doing in China in 2010? Why did you stay there so long? And, you know, did you notice any any big changes? And have you been back since the borders have opened since COVID, since lockdown? 
Yeah, so I started out in China through a program that was arranged by the British Council, an English teaching program. Mm -hmm. And this is an organization, like a, for those that aren't aware of the British Council, it's a UK cultural relations organization, kind of similar to the Peace Corps in the US in that they send people overseas to teach mm -hmm. English as a way of building relationships between the UK and other countries. So I applied for that when I was at uni and was accepted to go on to the cohort that arrived in the summer of 2010. So I started out in China teaching English with the British Council, was posted down to Guangzhou. Uh, it was real adventure. I originally planned on staying in China for a single year, treating this as like a post-university gap year, mm. but I kind of caught the bug in that first year and realized I just scratched the surface of what China was able to offer. So that led to um, more teaching work in the years that followed. And then from 2014, after I'd spent a bit of time learning Chinese, I got a job at the British Embassy, so moved up to Beijing. And then the rest of my time in China from 2014 through to 2020 was spent uh, working for the embassy, working for the British consulate in Wuhan, and then working for a company that was doing uh, UK-China trade investment work after that. Wow, very interesting, very cool. And did you see big differences between like Beijing and Guangzhou and stuff, or which ones? Which ones would you would you prefer? Are you a North China kind of guy or a South China kind of guy? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, probably a North China yeah. kind of guy over, but. Food-wise, yeah, people-wise, city-wise? Hmm. That's a great question. Like food-wise, maybe. And there's something a bit more rugged about the North that I'm drawn to. Yeah. Like it's a bit more, it's a bit of a harder harder place in terms yeah. of like the, the weather and stuff, which can be, can be a challenge sometimes. But um, yeah, I... I sometimes that kind of adventurous side is nice. And then the other element that's quite important is language. I'm quite mm. into the Chinese language as I know you are. And so to be in the North, you tend to encounter much more standard accents there. So it's easier to talk and interact with people uh, on their own terms rather than like making them speak uh, rather than their local dialect. Yeah, true. And I have to say being in Taiwan, like I miss the Beijing accent a lot or the North Chinese accent mm. like the Northeast Dongbei kind of accent um it's very thick and kind of in a way I always describe it like this and people look at me like what but I always describe the Beijing accent as like a pirate accent because you're always adding the r <laughs> in at the end of words yeah, and stuff and Taiwan is very soft and like the south and you know it's it's absolutely fine as well for me I just prefer as you said like the rugged kind of northeast northern kind of feel um and have mm. you been back to China yet unfortunately not i would have loved to have gone back by yeah. now china still doesn't allow tourist visas so i'd have to either kind of have another reason to go which yeah. i may have some reasons to get a business visa which is good uh, for later this year mm -hmm. so that could be an opportunity to go back but yeah i haven't been able to yet and it, it feels really weird because i left Beijing on 29th of January 2020, mm -hmm. uh, just as COVID was starting to escalate and all of the international travel restrictions started coming in, 
airlines started shutting down flights to China. Um, so I originally didn't foresee that this was going to be such a long process. So I had a trip planned back to the UK and I decided to go for it thinking maybe I'll get a bit delayed, but it's not going to be that long until yeah. I get back to, to China. And I haven't been back since then, which is coming up to three and a half years. Yeah. And, you know, I was living there. I spent four years there in Beijing. So a lot of people, a lot of friends there mm. that I didn't get to properly say goodbye to. Yeah. So it would be great to go back. And hopefully I can do that later this year. Can definitely relate to that. And did you leave all your stuff behind there? I know you're a bit of a minimalist, but did you did you have a lot of stuff? <laughs> have you been able to get? Well, that was the lucky thing. I I'd done this like minimalist drive with all of my stuff in I the remember. months prior. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so it, it's a weird coincidence, like a Marie Kondo style thing, where I was really trying to see how how much I could limit the physical things I had and digitize things so that I didn't have to have lots of possessions and I could travel easily. So actually, um, I really went far with that and I was able to fit all of my possessions in the, the, the suitcases that I took on the flight. Wow. And because I thought there is a chance this is going to be a longer thing, I decided to take everything that uh. I had. So I literally took everything I had back to the UK and actually another tour leader from the DPRK, Peyton, um, oh, yeah, yeah. was, yeah, he moved into my previous flat. We were kind of arranging this in like the weeks prior to, to that. So yeah. I kind of I had a person that. that I was building up to hand over to anyway. So it meant that, yeah, I didn't, I don't have any physical stuff there, but it's just really like the relationships um, that I had to, had to leave behind. And that was kind of, that was kind of a challenge actually. Mm. I'm sure it was for you yeah definitely um and it was amazing going back for me like i hope you can get back surely you'll be able to get back this year i mean you know we've been saying that surely this year surely this year but i hope because it seemed very normal like when i went back um luckily my visa was still valid like i have a five-year visa and it was still valid from like pre-covid so that's how i was able to go back um yeah <laughs> because like you said like they're not issuing at the moment um and i was really nervous about going back and worried what kind of China what kind of Beijing I'd be going back to because I really love Beijing I just love so much about it and I was really worried that it had changed a lot and honestly I got back and it hadn't changed anything and I realized the um, weight of those words when I say it because I didn't go through the past three years like a Chinese person in Beijing did um, or like a foreigner in Beijing did um, I can imagine it's been like very tough with constant lockdowns and testing every day and not knowing when you have to but it's like all of that never happened like you go back and everything's normal no one's wearing masks um really weirdly enough when I went back you didn't have to wear masks at all and Taiwan still had a mask mandate like I got back to Taiwan and I like had a mask like half on when I was getting on the tube like I just forgot about it and this woman came up to me and was like make sure to wear your mask properly and I'm like man I just came back from China and now like Taiwan's even more strict um yeah so anyway I hope you get back soon um and it, it'll still be the Beijing you know and love hopefully <laughs> Yeah, no, I listened to your episode where you talked about coming back to Beijing mm. and it was really encouraging actually because I think a lot of us during the pandemic felt like the world was changing into this much more 
severe and controlled place mm. and that was what was happening in China was definitely a radical change from what we were all used to in 2019 and the years before so you know regardless of what people think it's obviously quite a controversial topic you know how it how countries dealt with covid yeah. but there is something nice i think we can all agree about being able to see the face of another human being in public and uh being able to go around travel freely and it was encouraging to hear that like lots of the things that um we all loved about china in 2019 the years before have now returned uh, with some cool upgrades like the train ticketing system that you mentioned no more queues at Beijing airport Amazing. Um, get ready so, yeah, for that. maybe really enthusiastic about about getting back and seeing seeing the old China again definitely um and so it was in Beijing I guess in the China context that you then got interested in the North Korea stuff uh, right like I guess previously when travel was a bit more free and stuff like that if you lived in Beijing, it was a kind of normal thing to be like, oh, okay, like I'll just hop over to the DPRK. Like it doesn't seem like such a sensationalized thing when you already live in Beijing and it's so easy to go over to the DPRK and no one really, you know, you don't have the Western media constantly around you and stuff like kind of sensationalizing it. It's a kind of, a lot of expats in Beijing go to DPRK, right? And is is that how you kind of, how did how did North Korea get on your radar? I think the first time I heard about it was through the British Council, actually. Oh, that's cool. Because it was one of those things where people knew that this was the Beijing, where we did our two-week training in, in 2010, was the uh, stopping off point for the DPRK. Mm. So there are a few people in our cohort that had been talking about going. And the idea of going had appealed to me since I was a teenager. Um, some people have, like, you know, everyone has a slightly different rationale for wanting to go to the DPRK. Yeah. And honestly, for me, the thing was, at school, I was quite interested in history and quite interested in philosophy. Mm. And the idea that there was this, in the 20th century, there was this political ideology that seemed quite alien and different to what I was used to. The idea that this ideology had shaped maybe a third of the world's population in terms of right. the political systems and uh, uh, the, the political systems that the countries had adopted. I mm. found that really intriguing and I was like, okay, what remains of it today? And there are only about five countries left that still have a nominally communist system. Um, and the DPRK is the one that has probably the best preserved, um, closest to what was in place in the Soviet Union. Mm. So the idea of going there and seeing what that's like was, was always really appealing. Mm. And it was really just a matter of funds. When I was in Guangzhou, my salary was 4,500 RMB a month. So about in pounds, like 500 pounds a month or 600 US dollars a month. Mm, yeah. So spending a thousand euros to go to the DPRK not was cheap. not financially viable. Yep. Uh, so it was only when I like got to Beijing and I had a quote unquote proper job that I was like, right, this is now right. possible. So yeah, it's, um, it's, it's one of the first things I cheap. did after getting a job at the embassy. Okay, very cool. Nice. And you first went, um, so let's talk about your tourist trips a little bit because you didn't just take one tourist trip, right? But where is your first tourist trip? And tell us a little bit about that. So the first tourist trip, 
was one of the first I could get when moving to Beijing. So I moved to mm -hmm. Beijing in, I think it was June or July 2014. Would have been and hot. Like yeah, me in hot. Taiwan right now, like that. 30, 35 degrees. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I went on the China National Day tour because that was uh -huh. a, a tour that I could do when we had some time off from work. Yeah. So I didn't have to take too much extra annual leave to do it. Tours like that are actually so that targeted at, at people like you who are expats working in China. So <laughs> target right, market right. success. <laughs> target market success. That was that was it. Yeah. Uh, and I think it was a four or five night tour. It was a fairly standard tour. So it took in Pyongyang, uh, did a visit to Kaesong and the DMZ. And we went out on the train. And very different to what I expected. Uh, awesome. Some ways, well, I mean, I expected it to be quite like the Soviet Union in that there would be pictures of Karl Marx everywhere and like mm. a clear, coherent philosophy. Because the mm. Soviet Union in its approach to communism was quite internationalist. It wasn't necessarily about promoting one particular ethnic group over, over others. There were lots of different nationalities in the Soviet Union and they were very internationalist. They did a lot of, uh, of their propaganda was about spreading the revolution to the world. Mm. And in Korea, I found that it was that you'd never saw a picture of Karl Marx. I think there was one there was, in Kim Il-sung yeah. Square until about 2010 or yeah, they used about to be, 10, but... 15 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. But there was none of that. So right. from, from that sort of political side, that was something I noticed. Mm -hmm. And then I think a lot of the things that you often highlight in your podcast were, were very uh, apparent to me as well. Like, it, it's a much lighter place than you would expect. It's a much funner, a more fun place than you would expect. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the messaging we get in the media about the DPRK relates to you know, nuclear tests, um, you know, some of the human rights issues that there are, mm -hmm. the restrictions that there are on people's freedoms. So you expect it to be a very severe and strict place. And when you arrive, you find that the vibe is much more lighthearted and fun uh, than you'd expect. So to experience the country in that kind of environment uh, and with Corio Tours, just to give a, a plug to our organization, Thanks. I wasn't working for Corio at the time, but uh, Corio were just excellent at, right. you know, from the moment we arrived in Beijing and had the pre-departure briefing i think my my first pre-departure briefing was with rich oh, yeah. and yeah. yeah it was just exciting from yeah. the moment we, we started because we knew we were doing something that was pretty regarded as pretty adventurous mm -hmm. but also we were in good hands so right. arriving in beijing having that briefing understanding what we were doing yeah. being able to you know, experience that in the office around all of this north korean art and such a cool office as well in really good hands was was like a really good way of, of kicking things off yeah and, and um for people that don't know so rich is our like um international tour leader um expert at choreo tours he does like the mongolia stuff um and he's currently living in mongolia as well very very absolutely lovely guy uh, knows his stuff for sure um and whilst we're plugging choreo tours um i think what you said is like it's totally true like they really stand out I mean, I'm totally biased when I say this, full disclosure, obviously, um, but, you know, they really stand out from the other tour companies because they have, like, 
over 30 years of experience working in the country they were the ones that kind of pioneered opening it and starting the tours and helped to open the country out more so you do definitely feel like you're in safe hands I mean I I am totally biased but I'm glad that that came up to you as well <laughs> it's not yeah. just me that says it um so um then you went into Pyongyang where did your tour take you you went in by the train and would you suggest that that's a good idea for the people going there first because that so was always we that out by train but we went oh, in yeah. by in by flight so yeah it was the, the air choreo flight to get in yeah and i think that's a great way of doing it going yeah. going in yeah if, i mean it depends what you're what you're looking for i can see the benefit in both i've done mm. both i've done coming in on the train and, and uh flying in personally i was just like keen to to get into the action right so it worked worked well mm. um it meant that you didn't arrive the problem with the train i think coming in is that because the tours are so intense in terms of your time like yeah. you, everything is is you know people want to make the most of the time yeah because it's, it's valuable and we've come come all the way across the world there's so much to to see and do so rightly you know we cram a lot in mm. but that means that you need to get your your rest so one disadvantage of the train is you might come arriving a little bit tighter than you you really would like to be that's true yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but so so eliminating the that on the way in through through flying and experiencing mm. air courier as well which is uh, a unique airline yes it's also <laughs> a good way to describe it <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, do you, so you did uh, four four nights, did you say? Five nights? Four yeah, nights? I can't remember exactly. Okay, I think it was four or five nights. So I'm presuming that you went to Pyongyang and then did the DMZ and then maybe another city or two? Uh, it wasn't another city or two on the first, uh, on that on that tour. Okay. Unless, it's hard to remember because there's been so many trips and I'm trying to remember what maybe we did. You passed, like, maybe you passed Sariwon or Kaesong or something at least, right? on your way to DMZ, maybe. Yeah. It's, it's, don't worry. We definitely spent a night in Kaesong. Okay, there and, you go. Yeah. yeah, and I think maybe there was a, a trip to Nampo, but... Ah, um, nice. yeah. Oh, yeah. My favourite place, yeah. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> and then you loved your tour so much that you then decided that you would go back. And this is something that I would say, I don't know about in your experience as a tour leader, but like I would say a surprising amount of people actually go back for... A second or third tour um I mean like people would expect that it's a once in a lifetime you know people generally only go there once but there's actually quite a few people that go there twice or three times no and what was your motivating factor and where did you go for your second tour talk us through that a little bit so in a way similar to China going in there I felt like I've just got under the skin of this really interesting country it was there were lots of things about the experience that I liked. Mm -hmm. So initially I was really against the idea of being in a group, doing a group tour. So many people because, are. yeah. Right, yeah. And because personally I'm quite a free spirit mm -hmm. and I like the idea, if I go and travel, I like to just walk around a neighborhood in a foreign place and get my bearings mm -hmm. yep. and see what, what people are doing you know, in their everyday life rather than, go and see all the quote-unquote sites yeah like I'm more interested in getting under the skin of what daily life is like yeah I'd happily so, just like 
sit in a coffee shop and watch people watch you know or like just walk around and get lost and you for me i get so much more out of that than going to a museum so i totally right, get it yeah just going there. along seeing what looks good seeing where there's a vibe mm. seeing where people like you, you see a line of people queuing for something you're like why are they queuing you yeah. can check that out or even getting on a random bus where you don't know what wh where it's heading yeah just to see where you end up and adding serendipity into your travel plans in that way definitely yeah. So I've been drawn to that quite a lot in the past. Mm. But in the end, I ended up really liking this group tour dynamic, which totally surprised me mm -hmm. because you there's, there's, there's something really cool about experiencing something as different as North Korea with other people, mm. uh, especially when it's like the most international group you're likely to be in ever. Yeah. So my group, we had like... <laughs> people from Thailand, Germany, the US, so this was pre-travel ban, uh, Canada, um, a couple of other bits in Asia, China. So you had all of these people from across the world that were thrown together and experiencing this very alien culture simultaneously. And as I mentioned, it's quite a lighthearted and fun environment. So there were all kinds of jokes. There were different characters in the group that emerged. Mm -hmm. There were some people that were really like punctual and some people that were always a few minutes late. Mm. And you just very quickly develop a rapport with the group. And I found that that experience, it's like a fast track to becoming really good friends with, with people. So I've ended yeah. up staying in touch with yeah, loads of my... Uh, fellow tourists or people that I've I've led on tours over time oh, um, so, nice. so that appealed to me yeah yeah so that appealed to me and I just thought look there's there's much more to see here mm -hmm. and then the idea of going somewhere that's like so my second tour was a northeastern adventure tour up mm -hmm. in North province and Rasson so the idea of going somewhere that was like even more remote and even less visited was also definitely an appealing right yeah you just speaking about um the just to go back to the tour group stuff like it's just made me yeah. really miss being on tour I miss being a tour guide and like I mean there's not a day when I don't miss it but like talking about that I mean it really is I think this is why you get so close to the guides as well because when you're on a tour to North Korea like you're all going through the same thing first of all and then you're all bound by one at least one thing that you all have in common and that's the fact that you all decided to go to North Korea which is you know set you aside from the rest in the first place anyway there's something a bit weird about you anyway weird in a good way um and then there's like you're spending 24 7 together you know apart from when you're asleep these tours are intense and you get up at like six o'clock and you're having breakfast by like seven or eight and then you're out the whole day and you just you're tired together but you're experiencing so much and you do really you go through a lot and then with the guides it's even more intense because you're doing all of that but then after everyone's going to chill out in the evening then you've got to actually work with the guides and like plan and what's going on the next day and stuff and I'm sure you can relate to that we'll go into your how you became a tour leader and stuff like that later but um yeah just I really miss being on tour. I hope it can uh, can start back up again soon. And um, so you went to the Northeast, which is a very cool place. We spoke uh, on the podcast. I can't remember which episode it was, uh, but a couple of episodes back on, um, on Rasan, which is a special economic zone. 
Um, I'm going to pick your brains about that in a minute because um, I think you have a little bit more knowledge actually um, on special economic zones than I do. Um, but maybe you can tell us, first of all, what your tour in the Northeast was like, how long you went there, what kind of sites did you see, and also how it differed from Pyongyang um, and, and mm. your first tour. Yeah, very different vibe to the first tour. Mm. So the Northeast Adventure Tour, I did that a, roughly a year later. So right. the dates for that were, I think, the 19th to the 27th of October uh, mm. in 2015. Mm -hmm. So that was seven nights in DPRK, one night in Yanji. Ah, so very cool the immediate well. difference. Sorry? Very cool city, Yanji is. Like, very interesting, weird yeah. city as well. Yeah. Yanji in itself is a really interesting place just to visit. Yeah. And that in itself gives the tour a different feel. I would say, I think you've, you've expressed this view as well in your podcast, that it's probably not one that you want to do as your first tour because mm. the experience of starting off in Beijing, um, especially if you haven't visited China before, like China itself is an amazing. It's intense, yeah. The interesting but, place to visit if you're, yeah. if you, if you're the first time in this region. So to start off in Beijing, to get the pre-departure briefing like properly done with Corio, to meet your other... Uh, uh, participants in the tour um, that's a really nice start and then you're like from Beijing to Pyongyang so this this northeastern tour you start off in Yanji so for listeners that aren't aware of what Yanji is it's an Korean autonomous prefecture within Jilin province which borders it's one of the three provinces that borders the DPRK which is in China which is in which yeah. is in China yeah so this region, as a Korean autonomous prefecture, it has one of the first things you notice is that there is dual language signage. So there's both Korean and Chinese on the signage. Um, honestly, most people are speaking Mandarin um, mm -hmm. when you go around and, and just listen to what people are speaking on the street, which is kind of expected just to in China. Mm -hmm. If you do go to certain places, particularly like Korean restaurants, you can hear Korean being spoken. Um, and there's a lot of people that are ethnically Korean that, that move there. In fact, like a lot of DPRK citizens that have left the DPRK have ended up in this place. And uh, Shenyang is another one. Mm -hmm. um, so you're kind of getting this transition towards DPRK. You're staying at a place that's a bit more Korean. And it's worth just checking out, like seeing. Yeah. I, I personally find these kinds of places really interesting. Like one of my favorite cities... Uh, in the world is Hong Kong because I like the way that the sort of wow. British cultures interact with the Chinese culture. Wow. So if you like like cultural interactions, Yanji is quite a cool place to to kick things off. Yeah, that's an interesting comparison actually because um, I really I dislike Hong Kong, but I don't dislike it for that reason. I dislike it for the fact that it's cramped and expensive. Um, but when you say it like that, it is very interesting to see the play of the two cultures. Um, yeah, I hadn't thought of it like that. Um, yeah. So mm. from Yanji, where did you go? So you spend the first night in, in Yanji. In, uh, it was a hotel called the Royugong Hotel. So not the, the famous triangular one in the, in, in the DPRK in Pyongyang, but another similarly named one. And that's where we met our fellow tourists. Mm. And this area is definitely a lot less developed than what you're going to get in Beijing or even well 
not Pyongyang, Pyongyang yeah. on the DPRK side. So True. the equivalent of, of Yanji to Beijing is like Yanji is much less, less developed, I guess, um, much less international. Um, and then you cross over <clears throat> the, the border, an area called the, the Two Men River Crossing, which is a river crossing, a border crossing that dates back to the Chinese, uh, the Japanese colonial era. So it's been there for quite a long time. Uh, it was one of the crossings that the People's Volunteer Army used when they were assisting the Koreans during the during the Korean War. So there's a bit of history to the to the crossing itself. Wow. And then you get onto to Onsong, and you do notice as soon as you get to the DPRK side, there's an immediate difference. Uh, there's like quite a lonely looking sentry guard that will check your visas. Yeah. Uh, as you've mentioned before in your podcast, this is also a place where if you do want to get that DPRK stamp in your passport, this is the place that you can get it done. Did you so get it? This guy will look at your passport and stamp the passport if you want the passport stamped. Yeah. Did anyone refuse it? Did anyone say like, I don't want the passport stamp and he didn't stamp it? I think on my tour, no. Um, I think everyone everyone got it on yeah. my tour. Okay. Cool. Hmm. Yeah. So one of the things you do notice in it's so when you enter the DPRK from the Two Men River Crossing, you're in an area called Onsong, mm. and that's part of North Hamyong Province, yeah. which is a region in the far northeast of the DPRK, population uh, about two two point three million. Mm -hmm. So this region is known for being the poorest region of the DPRK. Yeah. Um, it's a region that quite a lot of people defect from. Yeah. Um, I read an article somewhere that actually half of the defectors from Korea, wow. people that leave DPRK are from this province. And so when you that, hear accounts... Yeah. Sorry, I was just going to say, I guess that's for the two reasons, the proximity towards China and the Tumen River crossing, and then also the fact that it's you know, one of the poorest places. Yeah, so partly because the conditions there are pretty tough. Yeah. Partly due to the fact that that part of the Tumen River freezes over in the winter, so people can cross over without having to use the official crossings. Yeah. Um, and so when we hear accounts of what the DPRK is like, they're often mm. quite harsh accounts. Mm -hmm. And some people have argued that one of the reasons for that is that most people come from this specific part like the, the population of the dprk today is just under 26 million so this is just like 10 percent of the overall population so it's not the entire country is not like this but it's something to bear in mind if you're going to this part of the dprk you're going to a poorer bit yeah and there's very there are very few paved roads for example in that region yeah. so when you get over you're on single lane roads, often on dirt roads. You're bumping around a lot to get from one free destination massage. to another. Yeah, free <laughs> massage. Uh, <laughs> Let the guide say. Yeah. And the sites there are, there's some really like impressive sites that you, that you, could, that you can see. Um, like the Wangjie San Monument, this really impressive bronze monument that's one of the first sites you'll see on a tour mm. of the Northeast if you cross in from two men. Um, but generally speaking, there's a lot of countryside. There's a lot of there's a lot more poverty, and you will see that out of the yeah. window of the bus. Yeah. Um, 
you've noticed people are probably a bit shorter there than they than they are in the rest of the DPRK because it's the area of the DPRK that was worst hit by the famine in the 1990s. And that led to malnutrition and some issues. So that's just, you know, painting a picture of the vibe when you get over. Um, now, that's something you're probably going to notice if you've done like Pyongyang and you've been to other parts of the DPRK. But yeah, other than that, there's there's loads of great things that you can be doing there. Um, so the North Hamyong province is <clears throat> home to uh, Mount Chilbor, which is my favorite. An amazing mountain. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're talking about, you know, about a thousand meters high, this mountain, and it's uh, really picturesque. It's We went there in autumn, so there was this lovely coloring to the trees when we went. Um, and it, it was it was like, you know, you feel like you're off the beaten track, but you're experiencing something that's really special and and not not visited. Um, so yeah, you've got you've got um, you've got Mount Chilbor, you've got Chongjin, you've got Hoyong City. Uh, there's a few different places that you can go on, on this tour, and uh, yeah, it's a really special thing. Yeah. Did you manage to? St you didn't stay in the homestay when you were there. I did. Yes. You did. That was definitely a highlight. So, so I that's in just the last episode um, that I talked about, um, you know, things that you didn't know that you can do in North Korea. And I think it surprises so many people uh, that you can stay in a homestay in, in Korea. And I don't know if the way that I tackled this in the podcast, does it justice? So what, you know, how did you find the homestay experience in North Korea? Like, did you find it very authentic? Did you find it? Yeah. How did you find it awkward? Do you speak Korean? You know, like, how was it? Mm. So, yeah, sadly, I don't speak very much Korean at all. Um, it's really something I'd love to have done. Um, when I was living in China, I was very focused on Chinese and then yeah. learning another language seemed like too much. So <clears throat> that is one of the major issues that you, you have, that the, the people staying in this homestay village um, won't speak English very well. Um, other than there was there was a child in the family that did speak some English, so basically oh, cool. we interacted through through this child, which was mm -hmm. which was a cool part of the experience. Mm -hmm. But to give an idea, a lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. ...idea of the vibe. Mm -hmm. I believe this homestay village was created about 10 years ago. And it's not a, like, really traditional kind of place, place that people, people would live. It's created as a special 
compound where people can yeah. come in and make these home visits. But you are staying with Korean families who genuinely do live there all year round, that genuinely farm nearby. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was cool. I mean, even though we, we didn't get to have really in-depth conversations with them, um, there's a certain way that you can communicate uh, by you know expressions and signals. They had they had dinner with us. We got to stay at home. Um, mm-hmm. It had the traditional Korean heated yeah, flooring. Yeah, we had a lovely bonfire in the evening and sat around. And um, this was just the tourists uh, for the bonfire. But yeah, mm-hmm. we sat around and, and exchanged some some like you know really nice stories. So it was. Um, really a highlight of, of the trip going to this homestay yeah so you didn't you didn't quite manage to get like any in-depth conversations with the north koreans living there and stuff i mean i i didn't just because like when i've stayed there i've been on tour and i unfortunately have like i'm busy trying to look after everyone else so i've never managed to really connect with the families there but um and it must be hard you're only staying there like one or two nights how did you feel with that like it was there was just too much of a language barrier uh, well, it wasn't. It wasn't too much. It wasn't an issue. I mean, obviously, it would be nice if I did speak fluent Korean and could really like get into um, some some specifics, some in depth conversations about what their lives were like. But mm. I think what we ended up doing is we had this meal, and then I helped this kid with the, his English homework, and the parents like so watched cool. and and paid, uh, and and were sort of just just present there in the moment. And really I remember nice. it very fondly. It being it being really nice like it wasn't the place where I suddenly gained all of these really deep insights into how the DPRK citizens really live in the sense of like having those deeper conversations but it mm. was nonetheless like a really valuable experience yeah and I can imagine <clears throat> like I, you know I can imagine if if we gave feedback to the Koreans like for example oh you know people don't feel like they can connect because there's a language barrier it would just be one of those things where you know we'd give them feedback from the tourists and then the Koreans would be like oh okay well to make the tourists have a better experience we have to find people who can speak English and then you end up getting like educated more elite people doing this homestay thing and then the tourists would complain like oh these people can speak English they're not normal North Koreans and I'm like I it's just like it's just when you whenever you go into a bar and it's empty and people complain that it's empty like this is not a real bar and then you walk into the bar and it's full and people complain that there's nowhere to sit it's just it's one of those things where I guess Mm. it's hard to kind of please everyone and uh, yeah but never mind I guess maybe we can prep people more on some uh, some good Korean phrases before they go (laughs) Um, and so, so how did you get around in the northeast? Did you take any internal? You didn't go to Pektusan. No, unfortunately. No. Okay. I've not been there. Ah, well, hopefully, hopefully, when uh, I mean, I'm going to ask you in a little bit if you're going to go back into DPRK tourism. Let's not get into that yet. But if you do decide to go to North Korea again in whatever capacity, hopefully you can go to Pektusan. Um, but you were getting around in just like a, the normal tourist bus, like just usual in in Pyongyang. Or did you get any internal trains or anything like that? Uh, so no, no trains on this trip. It was all done on the bus. Okay. Um, one of the things that I remember is that we had two different uh, companies because I believe there's, oh, yes. there's a company that awesome. will will do. I think it's KITC deals with North Hamyong Province, and yeah. then it's the Rasson Travel Company that deals with Rasson. So when we crossed over into Rasson halfway through the trip, there was a different travel company that took over. 
Um, I can't remember if it's the same bus or a different bus, but the whole trip was conducted by via bus on pretty bumpy roads. Um, yeah. Some fairly fairly long stretches, uh, you know, not not super long. <clears throat> maybe three hours was the biggest stretch we did from uh, Chongjin to Mount Chilbo. But um, uh, yeah, all, all on the bus. Yeah, and that alone gives you a really big insight. I don't know how it was uh, when you were in the Northeast, but it can be very strict and a little bit more like you would anticipate from a North Korea tour. Did you find it a little bit more strict than Pyongyang? Like, um, you know, for example, it didn't used to be okay to film outside the bus in yeah. the Northeast, even though it was okay in Pyongyang and stuff like that. The locals are less inclined to want to talk to you just because I guess that they're more nervous and stuff like that. But did you notice that kind of strictness at all? And was there anything, I mean, you, you touched on the fact that you saw bit more poverty and stuff like that but were you ever not allowed to take photos and stuff like that of certain things yeah I think at the time we weren't it, 20 this is 2015 and yeah. it may be the case that things have eased up a bit but I think at the time they were pretty reluctant for us to take photos right. out of the bus yeah and the general rule in North Hamyong was like ask before you take a picture rather than right here are the things you should take a picture of yeah. and then and then you know you can take a picture of everything else it was more like ask permission first yeah and so that was one thing that was that was different yeah and as you mentioned the reason for that is partly I think because this is a new part of DPRK to open to tourism um, I think North Hamyong province only opened up in 2014 or 2015 so mm -hmm. it was a very recent thing at the time and it's frankly still pretty recent there aren't that many tours that go to this part of the dprk so if people are considering uh, going on this tour you still be, will be one of like you know the first few hundred um foreign tourists that have ever been yeah. there I would, I would imagine mm. um so uh, western tourists that is there's probably more chinese uh, tourists that are going there but yeah Potentially. uh but yeah that, there's so North Hamyong, definitely stricter. Mm -hmm. uh, then when you get to Rason, things get more, more relaxed. Yes, um, let's get to Rason. Yeah. Um, mm. I mean, again, I just did an episode on it, but I'm really interested to hear your, your insight into Rason. Firstly, so I, I've never driven from uh, Chongjin. You went from Chongjin to Rason or Chilbo to Rason? I'm trying to think where we are on the map. Um, so we went from Chongjin to Rason. Yeah. How long is that drive? Do you remember? Because I've never actually done that. I've only entered Rason like straight into Rason. Hmm. Uh, I think that is a couple of hours. Okay. But don't hold. It's not too. Yeah. It's a yeah. long, it's definitely a longer journey from Chongjin to Mount Chilbo. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and how, how was Rason? Like, um, how was your time there? Um, tell me a little bit that, about that. It is very, very different in a way, um, in a good way. Sure. Um, yeah, just to give a bit of context on what Rasson is for listeners that might yes. not be aware or might not have heard your previous podcast. So this is a special economic zone. It was established in 1991 in the DPRK. And the idea of this, I think there was some... Uh, some UN involvement in setting it up uh, and the idea was that this was going to be a place that kind of modeled the special economic zones in China mm -hmm. and it would be a place where the DPRK could experiment with some kind of market liberalization 
1991, the DPRK really like was it was a very centrally planned country compared to what it is is today. Um, you know, like after the end of the Korean War, the DPRK economy was quite closed. It received a lot of um, aid from the Soviet Union and and some from China, and so it had this command economy where there wasn't really a free market. There weren't modern markets like the Kwanbok supermarket that we go to today. Um, everything was like allocated to people via, via rationing systems. And there was, of course, some informal trading that went on, but it was pretty minimal. And the DPRK had kind of seen what happened in China with Shenzhen and some of the other special economic zones. And so wanted to try out some forms of market liberalization. Mm-hmm. Um, Rasson initially was really lauded in international media as, as like this is a really big development it's going to lead to the dprk moving towards a china type model where they maybe retain you know the political centralization but introduce market reforms mm-hmm. and there was talks about this attracting up to i think like two billion of us dollars uh, in the early 1990s and in the end i think it attracted about 35 million us dollars so really really a lot lower than they were expecting Mm. and uh it's you know introduced some some reforms so it's the place that it was the first place in the whole of the EPRK to have a free market where you can buy and sell things and if you go to Rasson you can visit that that market and that is the only place that foreign tourists can use and spend uh Korean one in a in a market setting and uh that's that's the cool place to visit and it's got some historical significance because it was the first um following that like lots of other markets sprang up around the dprk although they weren't officially allowed they were officially allowed in russell so russell was like the legitimate market yeah Um, it's definitely a highlight of the tourists going to that market um and it's 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 a cool place to see both i mean you see a lot more so it's a cool place to visit because you see a lot of cool stuff that they've got on sale. You see a lot of local produce, but then also at the same time, a lot of import stuff from China. Um, and it's for me, it's so bizarre because everything is in, and this is so very, you know, DPR Korean. Um, you go into the market and you've got a section and you have about 20 ladies and they are all selling you the same thing. And then, you know, maybe it's hats and they're all selling you the exact same hat and everyone's trying to haggle for you to come over and come to their hat stall. And then you walk a little bit along and then everyone's selling cigarettes and it's all the same cigarettes and they'll be all the same prices and everyone's trying to haggle you to come over. It's, it's very much of a non-capitalist market in a way. It's very like no advertisements for like, come here, no special offers and stuff like that. Um, had, did you pick up any cool souvenirs and enjoy the market? I'm trying to think, you know, honestly, I'm not really one for, for souvenirs being a minimalist. Oh, so yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't pick up many myself. I think I'm, I may have picked up a notebook or two. Mm. But yeah, one of the, one, you know, good tip for uh, people that might go to this market in, in Rasson is to take your Korean guide with you because oh, yes. probably the majority of goods in that market are Chinese made rather yes. than DPRK made. So you, if you are someone that's going there because you want to actually buy some cool DPR, made in the DPRK products, then yeah. just make sure that you're checking. So I, I went and I bought some DPRK made notebooks, I think. Yeah. Um, 
And that that's a very, that was the that's pretty cool. And and that's a very good tip as well because again, same thing happens in the Kwanbok supermarket. Um, there are some Chinese-made things in there, and it helps if you can read Chinese because then you can tell the difference between Chinese and Korean writing at least. Um, but so many people, like when you go to the market or when you go to Kwanbok supermarket in um, in Pyongyang, I'd say like feel free to walk around by yourself, guys. But like you know. I would recommend that you stay in the group or at least stay with the guides so that you know what's going on if you have any questions and stuff like that. And they're, they're like, no, freedom, we want freedom. Like finally, you know, like running off by themselves. And then they come back and they're like, Zoe, look, I got these. And I'm like, cool, you bought yourself a bag of Chinese sweets. Like nice one, overpriced, you know, like considering that it would have been a lot cheaper if you'd have bought them in China. Um, so it's one of those like I get why people want to walk around by themselves and like suddenly at the opportunity it must be great but like on the other hand it is also a little bit like come on guys um <laughs> oh I just lost you there on the internet no you're back you're back yeah um so you didn't pick up anything from, from the market that's fine um but you did enjoy the experience it was a it was a highlight to you or was there any other highlight from Rasson? Yeah, definitely. Uh, like as I say, like when I generally travel, like going around a market is is like a great a great activity to see how local people interact with each other and get a feel for the cult the culture. The haggling is kind of fun sometimes as well. Um, so yeah, it's it's really it's a great it's a great experience. Definitely something that uh, you'll you'll benefit from if you decide to make that mm. trip up to the northeast. Yeah, and from someone who has experience or has a bit more knowledge at least with SEZs, um, would you say that Rason is a typical one? What marks it as different? Is it successful in what it does? Um, you know, I guess from what you were just saying before, not so much, but does it have any potential? Right. So <laughs> special economic zone means different things in different countries. Ah, interesting. It's, it's a modern term. Mm -hmm. um, and basically what it means is a part of the country that has different rules uh, in terms of like regulation and taxation to the rest of the country. So the first modern one was established in in a Shannon in Ireland, actually, in 1958. Oh, wow. But there are now over 5,000 of these across the world. So there was like a big boom that took off in the 2000s, um, you know, led by examples of well-known special economic zones like Shenzhen, Dubai International Financial Center. So there's really like a broad degree of how autonomous these zones can be. Mm. So something like um, something like Shenzhen is probably in the middle of the pack mm. uh, because Shenzhen, there are like much looser regulations in terms of stuff like labor. Um, there are different different taxes for import and export, different regulations for foreign businesses uh, and protection of foreign investment. So but like the Chinese like criminal law and all of these all the, the basic elements of the Chinese legal system is still the same there. Mm. If you go like further along to like what is the most autonomous kind of special economic zone, mm. uh, it would be something like Hong Kong. So right. nominally part of China, yeah. um, but basically operating like an independent country in mm -hmm. theory, at least. Mm. People that have been there in the last few years will probably start to challenge that. Yeah, but. In theory, Hong Kong should be nominally part of China, 
Uh, defense mm -hmm. and foreign policy are dealt with by the Chinese government, but other than that, issues like, uh, you know, well, uh, aspects like the legal system, the, uh, the regulation, the currency even, these are all dealt with independently by the Legislative Council in Hong Kong that acts like a de facto parliament. So you've got this like spectrum of different economic, special economic zones, mm. places like Hong Kong, Dubai being like at the far, uh, far uh, end of that spectrum. Right. And I would say Rasson is like at the other end of the spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> so there's not a huge amount that you can really officially do in Rasson that uh, you can't do in the rest of the DPRK. Um, the notable things are you can have a market. Um, there's slightly, I think it's slightly easier for foreigners to to get in uh, yeah. to to Rasson. Yeah, I think uh, Chinese people. Yeah, yeah, Chinese people can have like a day pass. I think. Right. Okay. So that would be another difference. Uh, it's also a place where the first place in the DPRK where they trialed out electronic bank cards. <clears throat> yes. Um, did you get yourself one? I had, a, I opened an account. I, I, yeah, I did actually. Yeah, I did get a card. I don't still have it. Oh, but, uh, never mind. I, I did open an account at the Golden Triangle Bank. Okay, there you go. Which you will visit if you go on this tour as well. Like smack bang in the center of the city, just down yep. the hill from the big uh, Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il statues. Um, you've got this, this bank, which is uh, one of the first banks that was established in the DPRK. And it allows people to have digital bank accounts like we would in Western countries. Banking still isn't really a thing in the rest of the DPRK, mm -hmm. um, but it's kind of a thing in, in Rasson. So that's one, that's one aspect that is genuinely different. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, Rasson doesn't really differ from the rest of the DPRK, uh, at least as far as my understanding of it extends. Um, so that may be the reason why it failed to attract the kind of foreign investment it was hoping to because yeah. foreign investors i mean this is a sector i now i now work in in my new new job and foreign investors are typically looking for like strong protection of, of their investment if they're putting their money into something they'll want to know that if there's a dispute between them and a business partner or them and the state that will be dealt with in an independent way by like a fair arbiter and that people can't just turn around and change all the rules on them yeah, and fair. Rasson doesn't really have those kinds of guarantees mm -hmm. for reasonably obvious reasons. So yeah. that may explain why it's not very far along the spectrum as, as far as special economic zones are concerned. In your, I mean, you might have no idea, um, and sorry to put you on the spot with this question, um, but in your knowledge of like Rasson and, and special economic zone and stuff, um, have you ever come across uh, that kind of situation where a foreign investor, or have you ever heard about foreign investor investing and then kind of get getting stabbed in the back by either some kind of business or the state or anything or have you like I mean I I haven't that's why I'm asking you I only know of like some a little um a couple of foreign investment schemes and stuff like that in there I don't know much have you ever heard of anything yeah so I don't know I don't have much detail on that but the, the episode that springs to mind is maybe the attempt to create a special economic zone in Sinuiju, which happened in about the year 2000. So Sinuiju <clears throat> is the border city that you usually enter in. Um, if you go by Pyongyang and then Dandong, it's slightly um, south of the peninsula. Yeah, I'm <laughs> like coming across on a curve. It's basically the entry point where most people go to, the border city to Dandong. Carry on. Right. 
Yes, a helpful context. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> there was a plan in about the year 2000 to create a proper special economic zone in Sinaju. Uh-huh. And they even, like very surprisingly to a lot of commentators at the time, uh, appointed a Chinese, so a foreign national to be like the governor of this, okay. this area. Yeah. And the idea that it was that it was going to be autonomous for 50 years and it was going to allow all kinds of freedoms that would attract international capital into the DPRK. Mm. So again, at the time, like, there was a lot of fanfare, like this is going to be <clears throat> achieve what Rasson didn't achieve uh, because it's actually got some teeth to it in terms of the guarantees. But again, like that never really came to fruition. The 50 years turned out to be more like 50 days or something like that, but it actually retained the status. And I think like some of the foreign investors in that lost lost money. Right. Um, and the place to find out more about that is uh, Andrew Lankov's work. So he's written right. a, written about that in The Real North Korea, one of his books. Ah, I think I have, <clears throat> I literally am looking at that book right now. Like it's on, it's my bedside yeah. reading at the moment. Um, but it's heavy bedside nice. reading, I guess. But um, yeah, no, I haven't got that far apparently. Um, cool, very interesting, yeah. Um, and so the moral of that story is to maybe not invest in North Korea at the moment. <laughs> I mean, it's getting harder and harder with all of the sanctions and stuff like that anyway, so right. um, yeah, um, oh. go, go on. Well, I was gonna say the moral of the story is like, basically if you are a country that wants to try and attract these foreign investments, like it, you really need to have some sort of international cooperation that mm-hmm. guarantees that they're gonna be, um, they're gonna be protected. So like some mean- of the zones we work with, yeah. There are international trade treaties, for example, right. such that like if, if you undermine an investment in a, in a foreign country, then that country will end up with consequences. And like, you know, maybe there are sanctions that might be imposed yeah. if they from the partner countries to the trade agreement. So things like that can like give foreign investors more assurance mm. that there's going to be a real um, sustainability to the to the new trade system. That makes sense. There's so some kind of third party, neutral third party that can help oversee that also they're going to be held accountable for because it's also like all well and good saying like yeah we're going to adhere to these treaties and then you don't it's very easy to just be like oh yeah no we said that but so I suppose it should be a country that you know keeps their promises in terms of that stuff as well (laughs) yeah um I suppose getting off the economics and stuff side of it it's actually super interesting um and i'm learning a lot uh, so maybe maybe i need to get you back on sometime for a whole e- economics and i suppose history kind of stuff but um we don't have too much time and i don't want to um take up all your time so getting a little bit lighter i suppose um I, i've got a few last questions for you um that um you know you can keep as long or as short as you want depending on how much time you have um the first thing is is sticking on the northeast side of things pick a highlight one highlight or one thing that surprised you or one thing that like will always stick in a memory with you if you have one thing or if you don't one thing that you really want to talk about in the northeast anything like that this may seem like a weird one oh but it kind of touches on something that people should be aware of if they're going to the northeast Ooh. which is that if you're going anywhere in the DPRK, mm-hmm. you need to be mindful of the fact that electricity and hot running water are yeah. not going to be provided reliably. Yeah. Other than like the Yangakto in Pyongyang, uh, like other places, 
you can't you can't count on it being there yeah and that is like even more true in the northeast yeah i spent uh i spent eight days in the dprk and we managed three hot showers during that Mm -hmm. time Mm -hmm. and one of those was at the kyung song like sanatorium it's called so this is like a place where near to Mount Chilbor, mm-hmm. well, it's, the city is called Kyungsong, but there, it's famous because there are natural hot springs there. So the great thing yep. about natural hot springs, you don't have to rely on the electricity grid being functional for them to provide you with hot water. Yep. So I remember, I think it was like after we trekked up Mount Chilbor, we were like, oh, we need to have a shower. So yeah. They were like, now it's time for the, <clears throat> the hot springs. And we all just like went in, you'll get your own little individual bath and it's fill up, filled up with water. Mm-hmm. And after like a long day of having done some like really amazing stuff, just like chilling in the hot springs, having some conversations with the guys on, or like around the outsides of it, um, feeling fresh, feeling cleansed. Like that was, that was a moment that somehow stuck in my memory. Yeah. Oh no, that's really good. This is going to sound like a really weird question, but were you the one that got, I remember there was one of us, tour guides were you the one that got electrocuted in um hamhung for putting the rod because have you been to hamhung no i haven't okay well then it definitely wasn't you (laughs) (laughs) because so in hamhung i don't know why i thought it was you um in hamhung i'm gonna have to give context for this now (laughs) it was a very weird interjection um in hamhung you stay on like the beach huts right and they don't have any hot water um but what the koreans do is they provide you with um a big 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 bucket of water like a massive you could literally climb inside that barrel um and they've put like this like metal rod inside which like heats it up and you know as a tour leader like you presume that you don't need to tell people to like not touch the water or to make sure that the rod is switched off beforehand but there was definitely a tour leader like one of us at choreo that did that before yeah. it must have, i don't want to go naming names um but uh but yeah must have, must the kind of thing i probably do so fair enough assuming <laughs> <laughs> to be fair i almost did it first time as well um but then i remembered ah metal and um and water probably electricity and water probably not a good thing um right yeah um and uh would you recommend going on a set so you only went on two tours as a tourist did you then go on a third one or was your third one then a tour leader tour so my third one i I transitioned from being a tourist to uh, an assistant tour leader right uh for the 2017 pyongyang marathon okay before we go into that can i just ask you would you recommend a second tour and would you recommend going up to the northeast (laughs) and stuff like that yeah, I would definitely okay. recommend uh, getting up to the Northeast. Yeah. And the second tour aspect of it was good for me because <clears throat> it's quite overwhelming being in the DPRK. Mm. You're literally doing stuff all of the time. You're you're going through museums. You're buying books in the foreign languages bookstore. Like I personally bought an absolute stack. I was like, right, I just need to understand everything. Even though you're get back, Read all of these like major works by Kim Il-sung to get under the skin of the psyche. Right. So doing it, like rather than doing a massive tour, which I mm. also, I mean, if I could have afforded it, I definitely would have done a, a massive like two, three week adventure yeah. tour. 
But one advantage of breaking it up is that you do have that time to reflect on what you've seen, mm. to go home, like read some of the literature. And then you're kind of kind of like coming back to it. You're reading the itineraries uh, in, in like a new way with some understanding of what it is yes. you're likely to see. And so you can kind context. of approach that. Yeah, in a, in, a, in a more informed context. Mm. And so that was really valuable for me. And another aspect that was valuable was just the fact that I did two very different tours. There was no overlap. Uh, if you go up to the Northeast and do the Northeast Adventure Tour, you're not right. going to see anything that you saw uh, on the, on the, on the like, more standard tours because it's limited by the geography. You can get from that region to Pyongyang, but you're going to have to either get the train um, which would be really cool to do, um, actually. Uh, yep. But that's I'd one option where you would have to fly. Yeah. Did Was everyone else on your tour uh, first, you know, was the first time to the DPRK or was everyone else second tourist or third tourist? So for the North and Eastern Adventure, there were quite a few that were going back. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. There was one guy called Pierre Dupont, who is oh, a photographer. Yeah, good friend of mine. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we oh, went, okay. Yeah, we went to Bhutan together. <laughs> okay, well, he, he was, he is a phenomenal photographer and filmmaker. Yes, yeah. He made some amazing films about, I'm surprised that they're not better known. Yeah, uh, but if any of your Instagram, listeners want to, yeah, yeah, want, to, want to see some really good footage of North Korea, like, yeah. look up Pierre Dupont, maybe we can put his... I'll put him in the show notes, yeah. In the show notes. Um, so that's cool. I didn't know that... Was, was he on one of your tours once or something? So I think it was his third or fourth tour when we were together. Yeah, he kept going in and out whilst I was still going in and out. Um, so I think he was <laughs> in a tour on the way in, on the train is where I met him. Um, but we were in different tour, um, tour companies. Um, but I, you know, met him and started chatting and he'd been out se- in and out several times and stuff. I think he got a bit of a bit of backlash from the North Koreans in the end um, in terms of the photos he was taking. He was taking, I don't think they ended up liking them very much. Um, so it was suggested that he um, chill out a little bit on um, on some of them, I think in the nicest way possible, um, lest he not be able to go back in again. Uh, but um, yeah, no, that's where I met him. So, and then we just kind of stayed in touch. So yeah, very cool guy though. And I'll, and I'll put him in, uh, in the show notes because very, very good photography. Yeah. Yeah. There was him. And then there was another guy I remember who I think had made 10 visits just as a tourist at the EPRK. Wow. And he was part of the Korean Friendship Association. Oh, I see. Okay. That must have been so, interesting. Yeah. So for, for listeners that might not be aware, this is a organization based in Spain that is a pro-North Korea international organization. And so it's for people that are like genuine fans of the North Korean system, I guess. I guess that's probably a reasonable way of describing it, although yeah. obviously everyone's got their own view, but it's like a pro-Korea, a pro-DPRK organization. So that was definitely like an interesting addition to the tour, having someone that was like a real, he was a real like North Korea anorak. Like he wanted to know all about the trains and like get under the skin of everything that was happening. And he, he just made it this obsession that he's gonna keep going back uh, to the DPRK. So you did get some more experienced travelers uh, mm-hmm. on that trip as well, which will add, add a different dimension to your, to your trip. Yeah. 
no very cool very cool like um yeah we were just saying at the start you meet such characters and I think that must be true when not only you're going to the DPRK but you're also going to somewhere so remote like um like the northeast so it's very cool um before we end things I don't want to leave without um talking about you then becoming a tour leader to North Korea like how did that come about everyone is constantly asking me um how I became how I started doing this and how I became a tour leader so I think it's only fair that now I grill you and ask you to tell in as many or as few words as you would like um how you ended up being a tour leader and doing then I think six tours in one year to North Korea mm. so my first ever tour to DPRK was with Adrian Sandiford who now remains a really good friend of mine mm -hmm. And he knew that I'd been back to do the Northeastern tour. Mm -hmm. And the thing about becoming a tour leader for the DPRK is that there aren't that many people around that have one, been to the DPRK more than once. Mm -hmm. um, two, I guess, have some of the skills that you need in order to be a, 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 good, a good tour leader, to deal with people well, to be well organized. And, and three, you're actually in the right place. So you need to be basically living in Beijing or able to access Beijing uh, readily in order to be a tour leader. So I think I ticked um, some of those boxes to various extents yeah. with, with Adrian. Uh, he kind of picked up that I'd um, got quite into trying to understand Korea and was, was like really excited about going back. And so he started off by asking me to assist a tour that he was doing he was running a group for the Pyongyang Marathon. This is a time of year where uh, North Korea has its, its biggest influx of foreign tourists to take part in that event. So I was like assisting him and that was how I got my first taste of being a tour leader. And then in 2019, there was, I think it was, wasn't actually the Pyongyang Marathon. It was a, a different tour. It was in April. They just had a need and they asked me to do another tour, but as a full tour leader myself then. And then it was just like the vibe, um, I got to know people and I happened to have a job where I could take some annual leave. And I basically um, in 2019 used up my entire annual leave <laughs> to go to North Korea. North Korea. So I had no holiday at all in that, like actual holiday in that year. Wow. I just went to North Korea six times. You were just in Beijing and then North Korea, Beijing, North Korea, Beijing, North Korea. That is very, it was, um, it was epic, yeah. that's dedication. An epic. That's a, that's a great word to describe it. And you you look back fondly on on your time there. I look back um, with memories of exhaustion. Yes. But <laughs> it was definitely something I'm extremely glad that I did, and I'm extremely glad that I had the opportunity to do. Mm. Um, like you know, so I really appreciate that Corio gave me this opportunity. Um, there, as I say, like you know, I don't. I'm not part of the Corio core team. I'm like I'm, I'm a sort of freelancer for Corio. Uh, so I'm not in the office every day. Um, I've just kind of helped out with leading some tours, but uh, it's a super cool group of people, and they they have like you know been willing to you know connect and bring new people in as freelancers, and uh, I've really appreciated having that opportunity. So yeah, shout out to the whole Corio team for, Korea. for that. Yeah, we've got a meeting in a bit, so I'll um I'll give you a shout out from um I'll give them a shout out from you. Um, what was I going to say before we end? Uh, so you look back at you look back at 
fondly, but also an exhaustion. That is exactly the way that I look back at it. I mean, you come back from tour and you just, I can't imagine what it must have been like for you literally going from work to take a break and then doing work, which is like 24 seven, you know, someone in the middle of the night has a problem, then it's your problem. Um, so exhaustion right. is definitely one, but man, I'd do it all over again. So how about you? Will you be going back, hopefully, to North Korea when the borders open as a tour leader, as a tourist? What What are you thinking? Well, if uh, if there's a need for me to come back and uh, I'm wanted, I will certainly uh, I will certainly come back. It's a lot further to travel now than it used to be, but I'm very keen to maintain my my connection with the dprk i love leading tours i love meeting people i love sharing you know some of the experience that i've gained from from my visits to dprk with new people mm -hmm. and i've made some great connections like i've got some really good friends in the uk now that i met on my north korean tours that's what i um, found like i've met up with tourists yeah. that i've taken on tour and stuff all around the world it's very cool mm. yeah yeah, so uh, so I'm very keen to to keep, make this an ongoing part of of you know connections to DPLK, make it an ongoing part of my my life. You know, maybe it's a tour a year, something like that. Um, who knows? But um, very keen to maintain the connection. Excellent. I'm very happy to hear that. So hopefully, hopefully you can join up your next China visit with a potential DPLK opening. Um, although there's been lots of talk about that recently, it doesn't seem to be like it might be anytime soon, unfortunately. My bets are still on, although it was looking a little bit hopeful um, about a month ago, my bets are still on for potentially around like March, April next year. Um, could be, could be this year, who knows, all bets are off, but um, yeah, I reckon that it'd be around um, early in time next year. Before we end, did you have anything else that you wanted to add? Um, that you really wanted to say about the Northeast or have you said everything for now that has been, that needs to be said? We'll definitely have you back on at some point. Final thought would be, if you're a listener that is considering the DPRK, but is concerned about, you know, things like safety or concerned about comfort, then, what I can say is don't expect the trip. If you're going somewhere like the Northeast, don't expect the trip to be like super comfortable, but it's definitely something that will stay with you for your entire life. Like this is not going to be, if you look back at your, your life in 20 years time and you think about what you did, you're going to be really glad that you chose to spend that time doing something meaningful and like going to this, this, this really unique part of the world rather than say like taking a beach holiday somewhere and chilling and relaxing like this is something that <clears throat> you really won't regret and also we don't know what the future holds we don't know what this part of the world is going to be like uh, in 10 20 years time so we're sort of at this what could be quite a unique time in history where mm -hmm. you have an opportunity to see something to see a system that kind of has that connection to the 20th century that's disappeared in most parts of the world so i would really encourage listeners to like take a chance and uh make a visit to a place like this you won't regret it nice very nice final thoughts thank you very much for that and i mean i think i couldn't make any better closing marks than that so 
with that speech, um, I'll kind of conclude uh, today's podcast. Um, thank you so much for joining me. Um, it was really, really good to have your insights and just honestly really good to reminisce about what it's like to be on tour and, uh, you know, stuff like that. I really miss chatting about that. So, and it was really good catching up with you. So thank you. Um, thanks to all of our listeners as well who have stuck around this um, this long. I think it's probably a little bit longer than our normal episodes, but I think it was very insightful as well. So um, hope you all enjoyed it. And I'll speak to you soon, Pete, and uh, make sure everyone else to, to join in next time. See you later, Pete. Bye-bye. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having me on. It's been great. Bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.